and welcome back to another episode of the McGill Journal of Law and Health's podcast. The year 2021 was marked by surging global health inequalities in more ways than one between climate disasters and the continuation of the global pandemic. The Lancet Report, which is an annual international collaboration with 43 academic institutions and United Nations agencies, noted that climate change is harming people's health in rich and poor countries alike. In fact, 72% of countries saw an increase in human exposure to wildfires, as well as an increasing transmission of diseases like dengue and malaria that are linked back to climate change. Data in this report exposed the health impacts and health inequalities of the current world at 1.2 degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial levels. And based on this current trajectory, climate change will become the defining narrative of human health in our lifetimes. During a six-month period in 2020, 84 disasters from floods, droughts, and storms affected almost 52 million people in countries already struggling with COVID-19, reducing their ability to respond to health emergencies. Canada also saw their fair share of these disasters, and Indigenous peoples in Canada faced the health impacts of these disasters disproportionately. Today on our podcast, Dr. McGregor is here to discuss the disproportionate impacts of climate change on Indigenous peoples' health, as well as the possibilities that public health and Indigenous legal frameworks present for tackling this growing problem. Dr. McGregor is an Anishinaabe woman from Whitefish River First Nation, and she is also professor and the Canadian Research Chair in Indigenous Environmental Justice at Osgoode Hall. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. McGregor. To get us started, can you tell us about your work on climate change and Indigenous people's health? Well, there's a, a number of ways I'm engaged in the topic. Um, probably in terms of specifically um, talking about Indigenous people's health and climate change with some of the work with the, with the Lancet um, in, in picking and choosing indicators and, and how those might impact um, Indigenous people in, in different ways, really trying to bring um, an equity and justice lens to any kind of analysis or to whatever kind of indicators that we're choosing in any given year. Lancet tends to have its own indicators and then we choose which ones that the, the team and the lead and contributing authors for which ones um, are gonna make sense in Canada. And this year, of course, a lot focused on the, uh, the wildfires because that was very current. Um, and so that's what I find myself doing in these kind of spaces. It isn't um, automatic in talking about Indigenous peoples' health and climate change, that it isn't just um, Indigenous peoples are not as healthy as other peoples, there's all kinds of social determinants of health that play into this. It's actually an equity and justice lens that actually has to be used as part of the analysis for in order to identify the distinct impacts in relation to Indigenous people. And, and I think in terms of my own work, in, in my own research, the, the overall goal is always planetary health. And in Indigenous conceptions, our health, like human health and non-human health, if you want to use that terminology for, for what we would consider to be our kin and relatives, animals, or even agency of water um, and forests, are really tied together. And this is part of how we understand our relationship with the natural world. I'm an Anishinaabe, so in the Anishinaabe tradition, this is through a concept of Minnanomadzewin, to live well. And it's not possible for us to live well unless we're living well with the natural worlds, honoring our ancestors and future generations as well. So it's it's automatically kind of embedded within the work that I do in in just climate justice period because of the way that Indigenous peoples understand 
their relationship to each other and to the natural worlds. More recently, I was appointed to the um, health adaptation um, working group as part of Canada's what part of their commitment for the healthy environment, healthy uh, economy, climate change uh, strategy or policy. And, and part of this commitment was to develop a, a national adaptation strategy. So now I'm trying to work with others to try to think through what this means in terms of Indigenous peoples. And again, trying to bring that justice and equity lens to it. Because the fact of the matter is, is the healthcare system in Canada fails Indigenous people. So, so just tweaking that to include Indigenous people and address climate change isn't going to work. So actually, there needs to be a whole transformation of the healthcare, whatever we want to call it, some people say sector, <laughs> healthcare system um, actually has to transform in order to be able to respond adequately to climate change and to the unique considerations um, relating to Indigenous people. That's great. And congratulations on the appointment. It sounds like your voice and perspective is definitely needed at that table. And when we're thinking about kind of a national framework for adaptation and equity, significant transformations, I think kind of the evidence over the past year kind of speaks for itself. When we think about, I think it was the Lancet report actually that highlighted some of these health impacts of climate change that have been front and center throughout 2021 in Canada. So we saw the wildflowers, the flooding, um, all disrupting access to healthcare and impacting people health. Obviously, we saw hundreds of heat-related deaths in British Columbia this summer during the heat dome week in June, and which was triple the average weekly number of deaths. It climbed to around 570. We heard of the town of Lytton burning to the ground, as well as Lytton First Nation being evacuated after seeing a heat record in Canada of 49.6 degrees Celsius. And this was not isolated. We saw these across Canada. So communities in Northwest Ontario were hit hard by wildfires um, with the evacuation of at least six different First Nations. And essentially what a lot of people are saying is that Indigenous peoples, including First Nations, Métis and Inuit people, are all disproportionately being impacted by these types of climate desires, disasters, rather, um, specifically wildfires with a 33 times higher chance of evacuation due to wildfires for First Nations people living on reserve compared to those living off the reserve. So why do you think you, you mentioned that the, the health system is not um, equipped to deal with Indigenous people's health and is not supporting them day to day as kind of a starting point, but why are these climate change disasters di disproportionately impacting Indigenous peoples and communities in Canada? There's a, a number of reasons. One of them is historical in terms of colonialism. So Indigenous peoples tend to live in forested areas. Uh, way back in the day, the National Aboriginal Forestry Association statistic was, you know, 80% of First Nations live in forested areas because they were part of the reserve system was to move people away from urban areas. So the the other aspect of it that, that I wanted to, to mention, too, is that when you're a remote, like you pointed out, for northwestern Ontario, like when I think about um, what happened in Lytton, and which is a complete and utter disaster, and it's not to diminish anything that happened there. That's not the point I, I want to make here. It's that there's a difference when you can drive away. Like you can get in your, like I listened to all the stories on CBC, people were able to you know, if they could find their pets, grab what they could, get in the truck, get out, stay with relatives in Kelowna or wherever, right, or friends. That's not the case when you're in a flying community. You have to wait for the plane. You can only take what you can take on the plane. I don't know if people are allowed to take their pets. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's a completely different <laughs> scenario when you're in a remote community. The, the other thing that happened 
in Ontario with the fires and the evacuations from northwestern Ontario was people, uh, a lot of times in those communities, English is not the first language. A lot of people don't have a lot of opportunities to uh, to leave and it's not easy. You can't, there's not a lot of free access necessarily, except maybe winter roads in, in the in the wintertime when they can build them, which, and that's being impacted. So some communities or some community members from Northwestern Ontario were in Cornwall, like the furthest away from them in Ontario. So they were in North, uh, sorry, Southeastern Ontario in a different culture, different language. So it's not just like you're, you're, you're actually, it's, you're actually going into a different culture when you're being evacuated from a community. So people don't speak the same language. You're, you're trying to live in, in an urban place that you've never lived in before. So it's completely, it's completely different when it's a remote community. The other is that Indigenous peoples have fewer resources. You depend on outside people to help you in this instance, like people in remote communities don't have planes at their disposal. They have to wait for help come. So it's a lot different in terms of their experience. You have to prioritize who can get out at a given time because this isn't just the fire, it's also the smoke is also impacts people's health. So there's a lot of different aspects to evacuation. And the, the other part of it is um, a lot of indigenous people's health is tied to the land. And you're, you're not able to do that when you're being evacuated out from the lands and waters that you've come to uh, come to trust and have a relationship with. So other aspects of this, um, like people, I mean, I'll do quote unquote, I'm sitting here, that's what I'm doing for listeners, is so there's the, the mental health aspect of it, the ecological grief associated with um, <laughs> coming back and knowing it's not going to look the same or be the same, the, the hunting, the trapping, the gathering, all of that's going to be gone and different uh, when you come back from, when you're able to return to your communities after there's been forest fires. So the so the impact is a lot different due to people's, just the way they live and to the historical situation of a lot of these remote communities tend to be Indigenous due to historical colonial um, forces. And that's not going to change anytime soon. Like they're, they're not going to be relocated even if they wanted to, to more urban areas. So you can anticipate wildfires and just kind of drive out. Like there's, there's never going to be those kind of resources unless again, the healthcare system is transformed to serve them. Like a lot of these communities, even to get health access period, they have to fly out or they have to leave the community. So this exacerbates already that existing um, situation in, in many of these communities. You mentioned ecological grief, and I think that that's really important when we're thinking about the fact that these climate disasters, they're having disproportionate impacts, but it's also not random. So when we're thinking about kind of like natural resource extraction and um, the causes of climate change and why colonialism or settler colonialism, at least in Canada, the form we see here is like transpired. We know that that's connected to ind Indigenous health and, and kind of even the intergenerational trauma that a lot of Indigenous people speak of today. So can you, you talk to me a little bit about how is Indigenous health climate change, and you spoke already a little bit to this, but kind of the right to land or kin, um, kinship, because I know it's, it's not necessarily a rights-based system, and self-determination and governance, how is that connected with Indigenous health and climate change? Well, people can't um, respond and react in the way that they would like. They, you can't. So whatever, like when, it's not like 
fires never happened before ever. Now they're happening at a frequency and duration and intensity that they hadn't before, but people could respond to that. People could anticipate, people could um, move to a different location. You could negotiate with other nations and, and like you could move, you could move around, you could respond to it. People aren't able to do that due to conflicting jurisdiction, like, like what you saw play out Northwestern Ontario, is this federal, is it provincial? That's what they have to deal with now, whereas let's say historically or traditionally, that wasn't the case. You could actually do what you needed to do in order to, to work through whatever, whatever your environmental challenge was, because of course there were environmental challenges. So a lack of recognition of rights and self-determination undermines all of that. It, it undermines indigenous, um, indigenous governance and the rights to um, self-determination or even um, Aboriginal and treaty rights. So people aren't able to respond, adapt and react and mitigate and be resilient in the ways that they would like. So one example that I'll give is um, a few years ago, I facilitated a elders and youth climate change and traditional knowledge gathering in, in Northwestern Ontario. They were from all over Ontario. And the solutions that were being proposed by the, the provincial government of the day, which was everyone should have like a greenhouse in their community. Not that that's a bad thing. Community garden. This is, this is how we can address how food um, sovereignty and security is impacted in climate change. Because of course, when it's, when it's being burned or flooded, there goes your food, there goes your, you know, so, so it impacts people's food and, and water security for, for health. And, um, but, that, but that isn't what people were saying. What people were saying was, we want to hunt, we want to fish, we want to gather, we want to be in the forest. That's where our medicines are or, you know, on the land. And, but when Indigenous peoples are on the land, then... Uh, and exercising their rights, um, the way the crown sees it is, oh, they're they're in the way of this um, mining development, this uh, forestry extraction process, like that. So they don't want that. There so was such a it was such a dichotomy of what was understood to be the solution, and indigenous being on the land and people learning the knowledge and language and learning how to because that's what teaches you to be resilient and to adapt. It's not other people's solutions. That was not what was being proposed. It was no funding for that. It was, it was for this other stuff. And again, like, fine, like my own community, you know, has community gardens for food security reasons, but that's not a, that's not a climate change strategy, but that was a provincial climate change strategy. Our climate change strategy is to be on the land, take youth there, learn how to connect with the earth, recognize when there's changes coming so that you can respond to it rather than being in this constant state of, of reacting. So those, are, those activities are gonna impact Aboriginal and treaty rights and self-determination. And the, the governments don't wanna let go of that, right? Like they keep wanting to have that go forward and kind of throw out these solutions that don't make any sense, don't correspond to the priorities of the community um, and isn't really going to help with long-term resilience and adaptation. And in some ways, um, when I talk about this, I, I refer to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. It's its main finding, and this is decades old. Like it, the final report came out in 1996, said, you know, colonial and later Canadian governments, um, public policy perspectives, whatever you want to call them, in relation to Indigenous peoples been wrong like their ideas what the solutions are have been wrong so we already know that but listening to indigenous 
people's about what they believe and know and experience as being the, you know, as worthwhile and make sense for them kind of strategies to address and meet the challenge of climate change are not, um, are not accepted. They're just in this position all the time of having to react to other people's ideas about what the solution should be. So that's a big problem. Um, and they don't see, um, you know, the recognition of Aboriginal and treaty rights as being a key climate change strategy for Indigenous people. And it is. When I think about kind of all of the climate justice activists that I know talk about, we have to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Um, and I know many, I know it's not a monolith, but so many Indigenous communities are, are fighting to just do just that. And I just imagine what could happen if self-determination really was recognized um, and we were able to keep it in the ground and the impact that that would have on, on the land and on communities and on the climate movement uh, generally. Are there some other ways um, that you're aware of how Indigenous people are kind of leading the climate justice movement, either in Canada or elsewhere? I think a big part of it is a lot of the advocacy. And the reason, and I see this as very legitimate and credible ways to respond. Uh, that's an appropriate Indigenous um, climate change response um, and approach to seeking solutions. Because quite frankly, Indigenous peoples are often on the outside looking in. So what are you going to do when you're on the outside looking in? You're going to you're going to do what you need to do in order to be able to, you know, advance uh, indigenous um, solutions. So that's a lot of what indigenous leadership looks like at the moment. Um, I would say the scholarly community has yet to catch up to that. Um, so what I what I've noticed in some of the work that I've done over the last few years, I've been involved in different um, climate change assessments. Some for the IPCC. Um, some for as part of Canada's climate change series, you know, the release of different reports over periods of time, is that there's a real lack of um, data or research led by Indigenous people utilizing Indigenous knowledge appropriately. Sometimes it's there, but it's still that more that extractive kind of approach to it. There, there, there isn't, like there just isn't the data and information um, that's out there, the body of that body of work that informs these climate assessments. And, and that's because if people didn't ask the right questions 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, or even five years ago, we don't have it because then the research has to be conducted, it has to be peer reviewed. So that's what's informing decision making. Um, and so if you're not part of that, and, and that work isn't out there informing, because that, that's what's used to advance particular positions at, let's say, COP at the COP meetings, right? They're based on these assessments. And these assessments have serious gaps in relation to Indigenous people and their knowledge. So, so, so Indigenous peoples as leaders have to, are operating outside of that. They have to try to advance um, their own knowledge and language and governance systems and rights in these other ways. Um, so oftentimes I find, you know, I might get labeled as activism, like somehow that's a bad thing. And I'm like, no, those are legitimate climate solutions, because right now the whole body of work that we're relying on to describe what's going on on the planet is lacking. Activists and the advocates and others, people who are living on the land, still continuing to generate knowledge, are filling in that gap. And so sometimes it's hard for folks to listen to that or to consider that as legitimate knowledge, but it is because there are gaps. <laughs> because I've, I've done those searches and there's major gaps in how climate change is understood. 
And I think that's partly why, you know, science of the day that we rely on right now isn't solving the problem. Like really, what I call every disaster report that comes out, the IPBS report on the, you know, the million disappearing species over a period of time, the recent, you know, IPCC report in August of this this year, 2021, and prior to that, the 2018 report, it's getting worse and worse and worse. So we need other knowledge and perspectives. And Indigenous people can provide that leadership. So in theory, it's recognized, let's say, in the Climate Science 250 agenda, but it hasn't been realized on the ground yet. So I'm hoping that Indigenous leadership starts to influence in a broader realm um, than it currently is. But it's so critical right now to have those advocates and activists because they're sharing an important um, source of knowledge that is currently lacking in how climate change is understood. And so you talked about this, like closing the gaps and being implemented on the ground. What would that look like if these assessments or governments were to take Indigenous knowledge and leadership seriously? Well, they would be one supporting uh, the recognition of Aboriginal uh, and treaty rights um, and UNDRIP and Indigenous governance. Because the fact is Indigenous peoples are complete, they're societies too, communities, and always have been. That's really most of the history here in Turtle Island or North America. And people have had to deal with change. People want to make decisions around change. And right now, Indigenous people tend to be the recipients of other people's solutions. Like that's how, that's what the funding orientation is right now coming, whether it's adaptation or monitoring. Um, Indigenous people sort of have to fit themselves into that if they want to access a lot of this funding, as opposed to recognizing like Indigenous, actual Indigenous um, governance and self-determination. So they need to do that. So, I mean, I've done this. I've done a scan across the country. Again, this was part of another IPCC assessment and a number of us were Indigenous scholars in this recent one that we did focused on Indigenous people and climate change. And we said, okay, where's the research that points to Indigenous climate governance? There wasn't a lot. It's not as much known about that. So I did a scan across the country. Students were working with me and said, who, which Indigenous governments Nations, communities have climate change strategies and plans. Very few. ITK does. Um, BC, uh, First Nations, in the process of developing one. AFN, I think, has a framework that they developed from a conference that they had just before COVID <laughs> and uh, hit. And uh, so there's there's very few. So they're not recognized as, as people who can govern climate change impacts in their communities. And what this would involve is being on the land and supporting that. In the world, 80% of the biodiversity on the planet is um, governed and managed by Indigenous peoples on 20% of the land. So Indigenous peoples govern, caretake about 20% of the Earth's land surface. But that's where 80% of the biodiversity is, and that's where Indigenous languages are spoken. So, so Indigenous peoples are clearly doing something right, and we know those are really important for um, mitigating climate change, um, the natural world, ecological integrity. And that's where that's what Indigenous peoples are doing. So there's a lot to learn from that. So so they're already they're already doing it, but it's not well understood. And as a researcher, as an academic, it's because we don't often ask the right questions. Uh, collectively, I don't just mean me, I ask different questions like what is our climate change knowledge? I don't assume we don't have it as Indigenous people. Of course we do. Um, so I think once we start understanding, like, okay, what does it look like? What laws, what, what does this governance look like? It's, of course, it's going to be diverse. 
how is it that Indigenous peoples are able to achieve this um, without all kinds of money, without other people's interventions and solutions? Maybe there's something that people, folks, scientists and others could learn from Indigenous peoples and how they're caretaking. And language is critical for this. So those are some of the ways I think that Indigenous peoples, by just by sheer living on the land and maintaining the biodiversity, ecological integrity, teaching um, children, uh, youth, intergenerational knowledge and language, those are important climate change strategies and mitigation strategies, because that's, that's kind of how it's playing out right now. Other parts of the world that other people are governing are not doing so well. So there, there's something to, to recognize there. And, that's, and that requires a shift in the way Indigenous peoples are um, understood, not like these problems to be solved, but actual leaders and not just rhetoric, because you do see it in, in public policy and climate change public policy in Canada, but I haven't seen it in reality. One of the other governance kind of suggestions that you've done a little bit of, of work on that we talked about before um, to kind of better mitigate and adapt to climate change relates to a public health model. And for the most part, Canadian health systems are not adequately accounting for the risks of climate change from a health perspective. So only 3% of federal climate change adapt- adaptation funding since 2017 has been designated towards this. So how might responding to climate change as a public health issue shift our current governance approaches without losing sight of all of the really great stuff that you've just shared about Indigenous government and leadership? I think health has to be a lens in any kind of climate change policy. doesn't matter what it is, whether it's um, having to do with decarbonization, whether it's having to do with nature-based solutions, it, it doesn't matter. That lens has to be there. And part of that lens has to be equity and justice. So right now, it's not there. Some people would attribute this lack of an equity and justice lens to the failure of different federal and provincial ministries to work together. Right now, we have federal ministries of health, crown and indigenous relations, and climate change, as well as different provincial ministries on top of this. And in order to have a meaningful solution, it's critical that they work together. So it's not approached in a very, in a very holistic manner. But if they could all agree that they're going to take a health lens and a public health approach to it, whatever that looks like in their jurisdiction, and it doesn't matter whether they don't think it's relevant or not to what they're proposing, um, then they need to do that. They just need to talk to, you know, health experts or people who are experiencing um, health inequities, whoever they might be, marginalized, racialized communities, as well as Indigenous people, then they'll understand why it's relevant. So that's not happening at the moment. Um, I think that's a goal. You know, I know that certainly um, healthcare professionals and others and researchers would like to see and have been pushing for it, but that's not, that's not what it looks like right now. So I think that's going to become a great, big, a great big push. I think traditionally that was a big part of how Indigenous governments approached, <laughs> approached their governance and whatever, like everything was so interconnected. It wasn't separated out from, from how, you, how you understood or what kind of decision that you were going to make. But that's not how Canada is structured in terms of how decisions are made. It's very siloed and they have to de-silo and become a lot more interconnected. And then if you don't have that lens and you don't know um, what that looks like, then you bring in people who can inform that and not be intimidated or or scared of that. People get very territorial about their knowledge because we're educated in a very disciplined way, right? People have their public health degree, engineering degree over here hydrogeologist degree over there, 
law degree over here, environmental studies over there. So we're not really educated to be very interdisciplinary. So, so all kinds of, um, I guess all kinds of approaches have to be taken <laughs> at every level in order to make it a reality in at least the Canadian health system anyway. And uh, one of the terms or I guess concepts thrown around um, when we're thinking about responding to climate change with public health is a one health model. Can you talk to me a little bit about would this kind of respond to some of the siloing that we see within Canadian government institutions and frameworks? I think it'll help. I, I, I only became familiar with the term when it was being, um, it was a UN report that came out and it was called the roots of the pandemic, which it pointed to climate change being one of the roots of the, the, the global pandemic that we're now in the midst of. So the One Health approach, so I looked at it and I went, oh, okay, this is kind of interesting because it recognizes the environment, it recognizes the role of animals, and it recognizes humans, like human health. And normally those are all separate. So I remember thinking, oh, finally, taking a more holistic approach to how to understand um, health and human nature kind of relationships. But it's still limited, in my view, from an Indigenous perspective. And, and I think we'll start to see a little bit more work coming out from an Indigenous perspective on One Health. So it's kind of getting there, but it's not quite there in the sense of um, Indigenous wouldn't limit like it just to animals. It would also be plants. And also our idea, of, I guess, of nature environments a lot broader, like, we, like in the One Health approach, we're separating it on animals. Well, it's more like livestock from the natural world, right? But for Indigenous people, natural world includes all the relatives and kin who could be animals, could be fish, you know, could be, um, could be trees. So an Indigenous conception is a lot broader and draws those interconnections still a lot um, closer. Because even, even in the concept of One Health, when you look at them, there's still, it's drawing the connections, which is critically important, but they're still separate. If you're going to employ the One Health approach, which is, which is great, you need to bring in the veterinarians or whoever, people who know about animals. You need to bring in the people who know about the, the environment, natural world. You need to bring people who are, you know, the, the health experts. That's a very good thing to be happening because often it doesn't happen. But for Indigenous people, um, some people are going to know all of those things. They're going to know a lot about animals because they hunt or they trap. They're not necessarily going to be seen as health people, but they are. So I do find the Indigenous pers perspective, and there's going to be a diversity of perspectives. I'm speaking more from an Anishinaabek perspective is a lot broader. But I remember thinking the first time started to learn about it, I thought they're getting there. It's moving towards there. We're probably going to get to the point where there's going to be agreement between Indigenous conceptions of health and the One Health approach because they're moving towards that interdisciplinary approach. They're moving towards the fact that it's more than just about people, that the natural world or the environment and these other beings are relevant to our, uh, to our health and us to their health. That's the other part of it. It's not just a one-way flow of how um, health is approached. And we're not going to be healthy unless the natural world or the environment or these other beings are healthy. And again, that's similar to the Minna-Modzawin approach. So, so I do see where there's a lot of, where there could be synergy. And I think if, if people really adopt the One Health approach, you're going to bring different people together who often didn't work together or didn't think they were relevant to each other. And that's a good thing to be happening. Sounds like these uh, public health experts or the people developing these frameworks have a lot to learn from Indigenous communities that have been kind of talking about this for eons. From a legal framework perspective, 
you've talked a lot about kind of what needs to happen from an indigenous conception, from public health model perspective. So what are the steps that need to be taken within legal frameworks to implement these Indigenous-led and public health strategies to address the impacts of climate change on health? So I think it depends on what legal frameworks you mean. If you mean the Canadian legal framework, <laughs> I think there's a lot of work to be done. I just had a student who, that's what her whole master's was about, looking at like where, where are the inroads within the Canadian, Canadian legal system. One of her conclusions, or one of the approaches that she was taking was the rights of nature approach. And you can see how that could be linked also to the One Health, right? So the rights of nature, the personhood of nature might help with that because we have, because you, you would have to protect it. Um, you'd have to protect whatever, whatever that entity or being, um, being was as being like, basically the current framework isn't, isn't working, right? It's not, even with the environmental reform of the, you know, Fisheries Act, um, now the Impact Assessment Act, those those are recognizing climate change, but to me, climate change is almost like the, almost like the logical outcome of all these cumulative impact of all these different projects altogether. Like that's what's going to happen. Like and so, cumulative impacts becomes really important. Right now, the frameworks don't really sort of allow for that holistic, connect the dots um, kind of approach. But I think there might be there might be some ways that that it, that it can try to address that. I think the indigenous legal frameworks are more apt to be able to do it because they existed before. They would have adapted over time because they're thousands of years old. So what way of work for the Anishinaabek 10,000 years ago didn't necessarily work a thousand years ago and needed to be changed 500 years ago and would need to change to deal with the challenges that we're dealing with now. But we had our own legal frameworks and those were based on responsibilities and obligations and duties to the natural world. And again, it links in, like it's a more holistic can link into the One Health approach. Um, so to me, those are the, the legal frameworks, I think, to start paying more attention to. And first of all, that, of course, means you have to recognize that Indigenous people had them, you know, and that they existed. So clearly, the current governance and legal system and policy framework at every level is failing. All the disaster reports, what I call the disaster reports, are pointing to that. So we need different frameworks. We need to have more creativity and innovation, and they already exist. We need to have more imagination in all of this. Relying on the status quo, because the status quo is failing, is not going to get us out of this. We need to, we, there needs to be a lot of creativity. You need to really draw on different legal frameworks, knowledge frameworks, and governance frameworks. But I do think Indigenous um, legal frameworks or laws or orders or systems, different people use different terminology, is more congruent with the One Health approach or Indigenous health approach because they, they speak to those obligations to take care of your kin and vice versa, it's a reciprocal obligation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. McGregor. Shpigwech and thank you for listening. It's certainly clear that how we are approaching climate change right now is having devastating impacts on people's health across Canada and especially Indigenous people's health and people living in remote communities. To respond, it's imperative that we overcome these siloed rigidities that exist in jurisdiction and Canada's legal and governance frameworks, and that we begin adopting a public health model to respond to climate change, as well as Indigenous frameworks, and that we listen to Indigenous leadership on how we can better protect planetary health. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the McGill Journal of Law and Health's podcast.